Okay, last time we got together, we started to uh, address the question that um, we will pick up and continue today, and that is, what can God do? What can he do, or better yet, how powerful is God? We've all seen uh, or heard news reporters speak of the, uh, the effects or the results of Mother Nature, and uh, we've also seen the effects of you know, I was wondering, is Mother Nature married to Father Time? Is that the way this works? <laughs> you know, you, you hear that all the time, Mother Nature and Father Time. And, and the problem is, when you hear people talk about Mother Nature and Father Time, it kind of helps us uh, become even more confused as to the identity of God. You know, who is God and how powerful is He or what can He do? And uh, it reminds me of a story that I heard not long ago that, that I want to share with you because it, it kind of relates, and even if it doesn't, it's kind of a good story. So anyway... But anyway, it goes like this. It was, a, it was a foggy night, and there was a captain that was out to sea. And uh, he saw what appeared to be lights of another ship that were coming at him from another direction. So he told his signalman to go ahead and signal this particular, uh, these lights. And he said, uh, he said, go ahead and send this message. Change your course 10 degrees to the north. So he did. And the reply came back, and it says, you change your course 10 degrees to the south. Well, the captain was a little bit irate about this, and he said, tell him this. Tell him that I'm a captain and for him to change his course 10 degrees to the north. So he responded, okay, I'm a captain, change your degree. Well, the reply came back, I'm a seaman first class, you change your course 10 degrees to the south. Well, the captain was furious because a captain outweighs a seaman first class. And so as he went back, he said, you tell him that I'm a battleship and to tell him to change his course 10 degrees to the north. So he did and the reply came back, I'm a lighthouse, you change your course 10 degrees to the south. And, you know, and I love that story because that's kind of like some of us are like that with God. It's like, hey, 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 God, I'm a battleship now. You know, I got, I got all the power. I don't need anybody. I'm self-sufficient. And we kind of get this, this impression that, you know, somehow we're a lot more powerful than we are. And God just kind of comes back nice and gently and says, well, I'm a lighthouse. And, you know, if you want to keep going the direction you're going, that's fine. However, I would recommend that you might want to consider changing your course. How powerful is God? The last time we got together, we went in great detail, but I just want to review it very quickly. We learned these four things. Number one, we saw that God can do all things. Job said that, you know what, I know that you can do all things, God. No plan of yours can be thwarted, whatever your purposes are. The bottom line is, Job came to the conclusion, you know what, if God's got a plan, we're not going to be able to stop it, we're not going to be able to change it. And that's just the way that it is. So we know that God can do all things. When Jesus was talking to his disciples, he said to them, you know, and they were questioning, well, if a rich man can't get to heaven necessarily, I mean, who's, who's going to get there? He said, well, you know what? With Jesus, he said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And I like that. He was saying that, you know what? But the point that we need to understand in this, too, is that even though all things are possible, meaning that it is possible, do you ever hear somebody say, hey, you know what? Well, I think God's just going to forgive everybody, and everybody's going to heaven. Now, could God do that? Absolutely. He's got the clout. He's got the power. He's got the authority. He could do that if he chose to do that. However, there's one thing that we need to understand. That's not what he's chosen to do. He has put a plan into action, and the action is very simple. For those who believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that they'll go to heaven. For those who deny that or don't believe in him, they won't go to heaven. That's God's plan. That's his purpose. Even though God, because he's God and he's the one who initiated the plan, could say, you know what? I'm just going to let everybody into heaven. But he decides that's not what he's going to do. So with God, all things are possible, yet we need to understand that it's not necessarily how God does things. The second thing that we saw was that nothing was too difficult for God. 
We saw the, the illustration that was given from the Bible that Abraham, who was too old, who was infinite, who couldn't have children, Sarah was in her 80s or almost close to 90, and God said, you know what, you're going to have a child. And they said, there's no way, it's not possible, and she laughed about it. And God said, oh no, you, you laugh, but I'm telling you, next year at this time, you're going to have a child. And see, nothing is too difficult for God. And so as we go through all the major things that happen in one's life, and you begin to question, is this one too tough for God? The Bible clearly teaches how powerful is God. He has taught us that nothing is too difficult for God. He can do all things. Nothing's too difficult for him. And yet he will only do those things which are consistent with his nature, his character, and his purpose. And that's what we've already talked about. God has a purpose and a plan, and he will not violate those purposes and that plan or his character or his nature by using the power that he has the ability and he has the access to to deny himself. He cannot do that. We saw that God can't lie. God can't change his mind. You know, God makes a promise, he's going to keep the promise. And God will not deny himself. God cannot tempt any of us to do evil. We choose to do wrong when we personally choose to do so. God didn't make us a certain way that would violate his plan or his purpose or his character. We have decisions to make and we make choices and sometimes, regrettably, they're the wrong choices and we suffer the consequences, but God allows us the freedom to make that choice. So God will do what's consistent with his nature, his purpose, his character. And the last thing that we saw was that God is never exhausted by the exercise of his power. God never gets too tired to continue to help us when we cry out to him and we get in the jam and we need him. God is never tired. He is never, he never, he's never weary. He's never, he never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's always alert. He's always present. He's always available for us. And we need to understand that. So as we go through these things, and you can come up with your own definition, but the bottom line in my mind as I go through the Bible is I realize that God can do all things, that nothing is too difficult for him, that he never gets tired of helping us, he never grows weary of hearing from us, he's never exhausted by the exercise of his power, and yet I realize too that he will only do that which is consistent with his plans and his purpose. That's why we need to come to a point like John was saying. He said, do we want God to do our agenda or are we willing to submit to the agenda of God? I mean, that was the struggle that Jesus said in the garden when he said, you know what? You know, not my will be done, but God, your, your will be done. You know, and we need to each need to ask ourselves a question of our own personal lives. Are we at that point where we're willing to make that same statement? God, whatever your will is or desire or your plan is for my life, I'm willing to submit to that. And let me tell you something, it's not a foolish thing or stupid thing to do. You know why? Because if God and what we learn about him is true and his purposes cannot be denied and his plan will be fulfilled, duh, guess what? It's going to happen whether you're in agreement with it or not. So I just figure I might as well go with the winner. You might as well go the direction you're going to end up going anyway because God's plans and purposes will not be denied. So I just say, hey, God, you, you got a better idea than I do. Now, see, if you've, already, if you've been paying attention throughout this series, we realize that God knows all things, that God is present everywhere at the same time, and it begins to help me to understand that, you know what, if God knows all things, and he knows how things are going to turn out, and he's got a purpose and a plan that line up with the fact that he knows everything and he can't make any mistakes then it would only seem natural to me that I'd want to follow his plans because he knows things and sees things that I don't see. He sees the end while we're still looking at the beginning. And we have access to that wisdom. The Bible says if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. We have access to tap into that wisdom that God has. 
Anyway, all those things are great, and that's a definition, and it kind of helps to a certain degree. But the bottom line is, you know what? Really, if you want to feel the impact of God's power, we need to understand that he has displayed evidence that we can trust him. This past week, we were doing work at one of our customers' homes, and, you know, and she was an older woman that's been around for a while, and basically her, she came to this conclusion in life, and maybe you can relate to it. She said, you know what? Talk is cheap. Let's just see what kind of job you can do. You know what I'm saying? I mean, have you been at that point? It's like, God, okay, well, you know, I read this in the Bible, and the Bible says you can do all these things. And, and, you know, not to be too cynical here, but talk is cheap. What evidence has God given us that he is as powerful as he claims to be? What's the evidence that's out there that we can look at, that we can observe, and say, you know what? Hey, God has demonstrated that he has the ability to do what he can do. See, it's one thing to go to someone and say, I can do this. It's another thing to be able to demonstrate it and have evidence. And that's what's great about if you're any kind of business to have referrals. People that have seen what you can do, they see the job you can do, and then they tell somebody else about it. That's why it's so powerful to have that type of integrity and reputation because that speaks louder than any sales pitch that you could ever give to somebody. Hey, here's the price, here's the job, and if you don't believe that we can do it, then here's a list of references you call, you check on anybody that you want. And see, that's important. And so what God's saying is, Chuck, you know what, I'm not asking you to believe in me without giving you references. Here's the evidence for the fact that I am who I claim to be and that I have all power. Number one, let me go, we'll just go through six of them very quickly. Number one, the first evidence of God's power is what? His creation. I mean, stop and think about this for a minute. If you just look around, the evidence is overwhelming. If you want proof that God is powerful, all you have to do is look around. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 1 and see what God has to say about the creation of the universe. Does God exist and is He as powerful as He claims to be? In Romans chapter 1, we read of the power of God. Romans chapter 1, look at verse 20, and we'll start there. One of the biggest problems that we have with God is, I don't know about you, but I haven't personally seen him yet. Now, I know there are people who have claimed to have that happen, but I just want to, you know, most people that I know in the circles I run around in, they haven't claimed to have seen God face to face yet. So, the problem that I have is, how do you know God exists, and how do you know that he's real, and, and how do we know anything about him? Well, God explains that to us. In Romans chapter 1, verse, starting with verse 20, he says this, For since the creation of the world, his, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. God is saying, Chuck, I know you've never seen me, and you don't really know a lot about me, and you're not even sure who I am, but all you've got to do is just look around and open your eyes and see what I've made. Look at the universe you live in. Look at the earth that you stand upon. Look at the water, the ground, the stars, the planets, the sun, the moon. Look at everything around you, and I'm shouting out to you who I am. The invisible attributes of God and the eternal power of God is evident in what we see around us. But we go on, it says, for even though they knew God, and what's interesting and what God's indictment is of all people is that God has put in the heart of all man the fact that God exists, that we were created in the image and likeness of God. We have an awareness of who God is, and yet many of us don't understand who he is, and we're seeking and we're searching, and that's why there's so many different religions, and that's why there's so many different beliefs, because we're all trying to understand who God is. 
He's saying, but you know what? But I've put in the heart of every person the fact that God exists. He said, and, and even though they knew me, they did not honor me as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. They came up with all kinds of different reasons to try to deny that it was God who created everything. It must be the big old Big Bang Theory. It must be sludge and slime and we crawled out of something and, and we can't figure it out and explain it so let's tack on billions of years to it and it'll give everybody a headache and, and they'll just go ahead and run with that and, and they won't try to get into it and we don't want to talk about it but there's got to be a, a better explanation because we don't want to know that we're accountable to God. We just want to hope that we just got here and we're really the masters of our own souls and, and the captains of our own fleet and somehow we, we, we control our own destiny. We don't want to know we have to answer to God. He says, so we become foolish in our speculations and then because of that, God darkens our heart to where we can't even see him and understand that anymore. He says, we profess to be wise, but we become foolish in what we say. And we've exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And what he's saying is, and so man decides, well, we don't want to know who the real God is. We want to make our own God. And we'll just worship that God because then we can control that God because we know what that God's all about because that God's made in our image and likeness. And so we'll make a God up that we can serve and obey because he's not going to be too demanding or ask for anything because we already know what it is because we made it ourselves. And we become pessimistic as far as, as, as far as the identity of God. I love the story that I heard about this farmer who was always optimistic and his neighbor farmer was always pessimistic. He'd go out there and he'd be looking out and he'd yell over to this farmer friend and say, Hey, isn't this great? Oh, the sun's shining and God's done a wonderful job and he's just given all the sun for our crops to grow and isn't it wonderful? And the pessimist farmer yells across, Yeah, well, if it stays this hot, he's going to burn everything up. Great. So about a week later, it's raining, and he yells over to his friend, Oh, look at this, God has answered our prayers, and it's raining, and he's bringing water to the crops, and our corn's going to grow, and it's going to be great. And the pessimist yells over to him, Yeah, well, if it keeps raining, he's going to drown all our seed and flush it all away. And after a while, you know, if you've ever been around a pessimist, it can just wear, wear you out. And you're trying to come up with all ways to try to make this person a little more optimistic. I mean, you know people like that, like they've been baptized in vinegar, you know what I'm saying? It's like you're walking around and all got that big old sour puss on their face and you know, complain about everything. So he said, I know what I'm going to do. He went out and he bought this bird dog and he trained this dog. And he spent all this money on his dog and he trained this dog and at the right time he invited his farmer friend. He said, hey, let's go duck hunting this weekend. Yeah, he goes, oh, okay, great. So they go duck hunting and they sit behind the blind and the ducks come in and bang, bang, a couple shots go off and the ducks, you know, fall into the water. And uh, at that right moment, this guy, the optimist says to the dog, Go get him, boy. And the dog jumps out of the boat, and he runs across the water. He walks on the water, and he picks up the ducks one at a time. He brings them back to the boat, and he steps into the boat. And the optimist farmer looks at this pessimist and says, How about that? What do you got to say about that? Pessimist looks and goes, He can't swim, can he? <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, so we're like, some of us are like that. It's like, okay, well, God, oh, yeah, God, well, you know, he can't do this. And we just go on, and it's crazy. All you got to do is look around. In Jeremiah 10, 12, it says, He has made the earth by his power. In Psalm 8, 3, we read this, The heavens and the moon and the stars are the handiwork of God, the finger work of God. It's kind of like God is planing these finger painting. I mean, you look at everything that he's made, and it's not that big a deal, and it didn't even tire him out. He just went, finger paint. You ever see, you ever see the first City Slicker movie? 
You remember at the end of the movie, I mean, you know, I don't know if you saw this or not, but I thought about this, and this is how my mind works, and it's a scary thing sometimes, and I have to share that with you. But you see at the end of the movie, remember Ben and Jerry, where the guys, the guys were Ben and Jerry's ice cream? They're at the end of the movie. If you didn't see the movie, just kind of, you can write some notes down on stuff you got to do later today, and I'll just catch up with you in a minute. But, but they're going through, and they're saying, you know, they're testing each other on what ice cream would you serve for certain types of meals. And he's there, okay, you know, he goes, uh, roast beef, mashed potatoes, goes through this meal, and the guy goes, rum raisin, something like that. And he gets another one, and he yells out another, vanilla with something. And he goes, come on now, challenge me, throw me something out. You know, and I think that's what God's like. It's like, hey, you know what, the, you know, I just fing it's finger painting. It's not that big a deal. The heavens declare the handiwork of God. It's God's finger paints. I mean, he's, he didn't even get worn out by it. And we need to understand that. In, in Psalm 102.25, we read this, And the heavens are the work of your hands. I love the way the Bible starts. you ever start from the beginning of the Bible and just read it sometime? It starts out like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's it. It's like, that's it. And everything starts from there. That God created the heavens and the earth. You want evidence of God's power? He made everything. Look around. Number two, you want evidence of God's power? Do you ever wonder how everything works? It's like, how does everything work? I mean, evaporation and, and condensation and, and, and rain and, you know, the sunshine and all these different cycles and all the process of the nature. You know, Jeremiah 10, 13 says this about God. When he utters his voice, there's a multitude of waters in the heavens. He causes the vapor to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. Psalm 104 tells us that he sends the springs into valleys which flow among the hills. He causes the grass to grow for cattle, vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth. It goes on and explains that even God feeds the fish. I mean, it's an amazing statement as far as the Bible is concerned as to what God can do. You know, some would say, well, how does that all work? You know, we try to come up with scientific explanations, but the Bible clearly teaches that God is the great power behind all of these things. Number three, the same thing with the laws of the universe. Why don't things fall up? Why do things fall down? I mean, why do the planets stay in orbit? Why don't they go all over the place? I mean, we look at the things around us and they're so consistent and there's so much order and design to it. And we need to understand that God's power holds all these things together. In Colossians 1.17, speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, And in him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That he holds it all together. That everything stays stable because God, the power of God, holds it to together. Hebrews 1.3 says, He upholds all things by the word of His power. The word of God holds the universe together, which isn't hard to believe because it was the word of God which created the universe. If you remember, it says in the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the deep. And then God said, boom, let there be light. And that's all He had to do. The process of, uh, of the universe, the laws of the universe, are all held together by the power of God. Number four, the fourth evidence, if you want to look at evidence as to the existence of God's power, is, is, is the uh, plagues of Egypt. Now, if you go back in history, and, and the Jewish nation can attest to the fact that God led the nation of Israel out of captivity from Egypt 3,000 years ago by doing great signs and wonders and miraculous things. We need to understand from a historical perspective, whether you believe in God or don't believe in God, you have to somehow or another come up with an answer to how this took place. The nation of Israel was convinced that it was God who led them out by miraculous signs and wonders. 
there were ten plagues that God set apart on the nation of Egypt for them to be convinced that God was as powerful as he claimed to be. And they were all designed to show the power and demonstrate the power of God. A couple of them, the magicians and sorcerers of Egypt, could duplicate, but the rest of them they couldn't. And Pharaoh finally said, this must be from the hands of Almighty God. The reason that God did what he did was to demonstrate he's as powerful as he claims to be. So as we look at that, historically we have to ask ourselves the question, well, how did all these things take place if God didn't do it? Number four, I mean, number five, we also look at the miracles of Jesus. Think about this. Now, this is coming from a, a, a secular point of view, a different reference point, but Josephus, who was the historian to the Jewish community, the Jewish nation, writes these words because the Bible tells us what Jesus could do, but we also have outside references that would indicate that what the Bible says is true. There was a man in Israel who lived and could do miraculous things. He could feed 5,000, actually 20,000 people with a few fish and some loaves. He could heal people. He could cause those who were blind to see. He could raise up those who were crippled, who could never walk to so walk again. He even raised those who were dead from the dead. And this is an historical record that is given in the antiquity of the Jews by the Jewish historian Josephus. He writes this. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles, for he was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 uh, other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe known as Christians, so named after him, are not extinct to this day. There was a historical record that was given from an outside perspective by a person who had heard of and seen what Jesus had done, and that was his conclusion as to who Jesus was. The miracles of Jesus Christ are strong testimony to the power of God. And we need to understand that because it's critical, and we'll talk in a minute, but if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, as it relates to the power of God, demonstrated in the life of Jesus. While you're looking that up, John 21, 25 says this, And there are many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. See, it's really important to understand that Jesus... And the miracles that he did were a testament or a testimony that he was who he claimed to be. He claimed to be God in human flesh. He claimed to be Almighty God. He claimed to be all-knowing. He claimed to be omnipresent. He claimed the same attributes and character of God. And they understood that because he said, even before Abraham existed, I am. He said, if you've, looked for the, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus claimed to be God in human flesh. The purpose of the miracles in which he did were to give a seal that he was who he claimed to be, that he was God. And here's an illustration of this in Matthew chapter 9, and it's important as we relate to what we're going to talk about in a second. But in Matthew 9, look at verse 1. It says, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, there were bringing to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Take, take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. 
He said, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. Why? Why did they say that? Because only God can forgive sin. All sin is against God, and only God can forgive sin. And here was this man who was laying on a, a pallet, and they brought him to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, Take courage, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And they were coming unglued, the people that heard it. Because they knew that only God could forgive sins, and they accused him of making himself equal to God. And Jesus, check this out, knowing their thoughts. We've already learned that only God can know our thoughts. That only God knows all things. And yet the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus knew their thoughts. And said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? What was he saying? Talk's cheap. Right? Prove it. I'm going to prove to you that I have the ability to forgive sins, and here's how I'm going to do it. But in order that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Rise, take up your bed, and go home. And the man rose up, and he went home. And when the multitude saw this, they were filled with awe, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. They were blown away by what they saw. So what Jesus was saying is, hey, talk's cheap. It's easy to say, hey, your sins are forgiven. But let me just show you that I have the ability to forgive sins. I'm going to tell this man who has never walked to stand up and walk. And instantly, he jumps up, he walks, and he's gone, and people are blown away. I would be. What's the power of God? See, God demonstrates he has the ability and the power to forgive our sins by demonstrating to us the fact that he created the universe, and if he could create the universe, it's not too hard to forgive us of sin. If, if he holds together the universe and the process of nature and the laws of the universe, and if he did what he did in Egypt to free Israel, and if, he could, and if Jesus could do the miracles that he did... You know what? It's not hard to believe that God can do all things. And the last thing is, the most, the, the most incredible demonstration of the power of God is that he rose from the dead. Doesn't get much better than that. Think about this. He rose from the dead. In Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, it says this, What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? I, I, we were at a restaurant the other night, and I saw this little bumper sticker type thing, and I thought it was kind of cute. It said, for those of you who don't believe that the dead can be raised, you should be here at quitting time. <laughs> I like that. You know, but, but the point is, is that the Bible tells us that Jesus rose from the dead. The greatest testimony to the Christian faith, and for those who doubt it and don't believe it, the, the only thing they have to ever do is disprove that Jesus rose from the dead. All of our faith hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Did he raise from the dead or did he not? Every other religious belief system on the face of this planet is led by people that are dead and they're still dead. Their bodies are still in the grave, but Jesus is not. The Bible says he rose from the dead and God with mighty power rose him from the dead. The Apostle Paul said this, you know what? That I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. There's nothing more exciting than a raised life. A person has been taken from dead and made new again. The Bible says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the greatest testimonies to the power of God. Now, all of these evidences are there for any one of us to review, to look at, to analyze, to scrutinize, and to come to our own conclusions. But you know what the interesting thing is? The book of Revelation tells us that God will demonstrate one more time on this planet for the whole world to see that God is who he claims to be. 
There will be tremendous outbreaks of, of plagues, and the wrath of God will be shown upon the face of this earth, and you can read about it in the book of Revelation. But the amazing thing is that even though God is doing all the things he's going to do, that that demonstration of power is not enough to cause people to repent from their sin. See, we're prideful and stubborn and foolish people. The evidence is there, but yet in, within the heart of us, God often calls his people stiff-necked people. It's like, I see it, but I still am not going to believe it. See, even, even doubting Thomas, as we call him, the man who said, you know what? I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. If I can just see him and touch him and feel him, then I'll believe it. But at least he was willing to submit once he saw that that was true. He didn't say, well, I still don't believe it. He fell down at the feet of Jesus and said, my Lord and my God. See, when God demonstrates his power, there are many of us who are still stubborn and refuse to believe it. Maybe some of us haven't even thought about these things, and I understand that too. But consider the evidence of the power of God. How do you explain these things? See, the Bible says that God will demonstrate this power again, and people still will not believe. Jesus told a group of people once, he told a particular man, he said, you know what? Even if you died and came back from the dead, people would not believe what you have to say. Why? Because they didn't believe what God said, why would they believe your word? If you can't believe God who's trustworthy and cannot lie, how are you going to believe the word of another person who has failed you in the past? So you see, the power of God, even though it's demonstrated, sometimes isn't enough. But let me get personal and we'll get some application going here. Why do we need God's power? I mean, stop and think about it. I mean, why do we need it? I don't need it. You know, you stop and think, well, I don't really need God's power. I don't, I don't want to tap into it unless I really need it. I want to burn up my markers with God, you know, and burn up those favors. Because I figure, you know, I'm only good for like three wishes, like the genie in the bottle, right? It's like, oh, man, I don't want to do that. So, you know, why do we need God's power? That's a great question. And we'll go through, let me, let me give you some suggestions. Number one is, because we're limited in so many ways. I mean, I, I, it doesn't get any simpler than this, because we're limited in so many ways. You know, many of us think that we're the captains of our ship. We really do. That we somehow are the masters of our soul, that we have control over our destiny, and we believe that. And maybe nothing's ever happened in your life to prove to you that what you think isn't true. All I can say to you is, just wait. Because something will happen in your life that'll leave you totally, just your mouth agape, trying to figure out what to do next, and you realize that you do not have the ability nor the power to control your own destiny. It's going to happen to you. And many of you who have happened to know that that's true. All that it takes is an illness. There's nothing more helpless for a parent than to know that a child is ill and there's nothing that you can do about it. Nothing. I mean, how many of you have had children that were sick and you said, God, if, if it's a matter of changing places, I'll change places in a minute. Let me, let me do that. Can we do that? No, I'm sorry, we can't do that. Why? Because that's not my purpose and plan. Oh, okay, well, what is it? And we're stuck back to square one again. All somebody has to do is say, you've got cancer. You've got a blood disease. Get a phone call. Someone that you love has been in an accident. <laughs> There's nothing you can do. You can't do a thing about it. I deal with athletes all the time who, as they age, they realize that the business has passed them by. And there's nothing they can do about it. It's over. End of the chapter, turn the page, move on with the rest of your life. But you know what? Some of these guys are the guys that, man, you know what? I can control my own destiny. You meet them when they're in their early 20s and everything's going great. Man, I, hey, I'm going to play forever. And if it wasn't for Jackie Slater, I've got a great illustration, you know, that I like to share with him. But he keeps messing it up. These guys are like, well, Jackie's still here. 
you know? But, you know, most guys aren't. You know, and you look at it and say, we're limited in so many ways. You say, I, 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 I'm out of a job. If you've ever been laid off or your plants ever closed or your business ever closed down and you need a job and you've done all the schmoozing and all the networking and you've done all the things you can do and you still realize, I still don't have a job. What am I going to do? I was reading the paper this week about a builder who had a, the policy of, they had a, a, a hire for life policy, which is an interesting policy. So I guess if they didn't want to lay you off, they had to shoot you. Um, <laughs> You know, think about the options here. They're pretty limited. But, but I just read it. And they had to lay off 9% of their workforce. Why did they have to do that? Because they realized there were some things that were out of their control. That was what our goal was, but we, we, we couldn't control what happened in the economy. We couldn't control what was going on around us. And we don't have a choice, but we have to lay people off. Otherwise, the whole business will go down the drain. What are we going to do? We're limited in a lot of different ways. Maybe you have a spouse that's decided to go find themselves. I mean, I mean, we've talked about this before. It's like, I tell them, don't even look. Cause, you know, because we know what you're going to find. And you ain't going to like it. But I had a guy call me this week. His wife was having an affair. She was doing coke. They had a little baby. It's only a little over a year old. And I've been, you know, doing business with him. And I've been a friend of his for a while. And, you know, and I've been sharing with him that, you know what? You really need the power of God in your life. Because you don't have control over what's going on. And he called me this week and said, you know what? You still doing that church stuff, and you still doing that? Yeah, hey, I need to meet with you. We're going to meet this week. Why? Because, see, God has finally got his attention, and he's pulled the rug out from under his feet, and he's laid him naked and bare in front of him and said, hey, you're vulnerable, and you need someone greater than yourself to resolve the problems in your life. You have a great need. And he's finally seeing that. But, but God's demonstrated this over and over and over again in the man's life, but he's finally got to that point, I give up. He's limited, and we can understand that. I don't know. I mean, if you're a single parent, if you're having a problem with your children, and you're, they're going through the teen years or even before that, and, and it's like you're throwing your hands up, I don't know what to do. I mean, what, have I hit a nerve yet? I mean, I, I mean anybody yelling, ow, out there? Ah, ooh, ow, yeah, got me there. I mean, you see what I'm saying? We're limited. We need God's power. Amen. Thank you very much. There's an amen from the first, second row. But the, but the deal is, we need God's help, we need his power, because we're limited, and if you don't know it, you will know it, and it's time just to throw up your hands and say, God, I need you. So I like what 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, most gladly, while I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me, Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and in needs and persecution and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see what he's saying? God can only get our attention when we realize how weak we are and we need his strength in our life. If you are self-sufficient, you will not understand that. If you think you have control over your life, you have not figured it out yet. There will come an event that will happen that will make you realize that only God is control of everything. I had a guy that I was dealing with just recently. Indicted on a major crime. He faces 10 years to life imprisonment. He came to our Bible study, but he quit coming to our Bible study. And so I met with him. I said, hey, why'd you quit coming to Bible study? And he wouldn't answer me. He kind of went, ah, you know. Ah, nah, nah. I said, oh, you know what? Let me tell you why you won't come. I know why you won't come. And he looked at me like, oh, man, how do you know this? So I know. 
you're not coming because you don't want people around you to think you're desperate and that you're crying out for help. Because you're self-sufficient. You don't need God. Said, so let me ask you something. I don't know what it's going to take in your life, but I was, if I was facing 10 to life imprisonment, I'd be pretty desperate. And I really wouldn't care a whole bunch about what other people think about why I'm crying out to God for help. So I don't know about you, but you can do whatever you want to do. But man, that is a stubborn and foolish and prideful heart at its worst that would not turn to God when that kind of situation is going on in their life. Now, some of us would turn to God to get us out of a jam. Oh, I'm in this one. I'm in a jam. I'm turning to you. I need your help. But I, you know what? I mean, if you get me out of it, then I'll go to church, you know, for a week or two until I forget how bad the jam was and I'm out of it again and things are going good. Or I'll do whatever, you know. But I'll make a deal with God. See, God doesn't play that game. But he's just saying, hey, just turn to me and I'm available for you. The second thing is we need him because we can't save ourselves. We're messed up. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none of us righteous. No, not one. All you've got to do is ask yourself a question. Have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever disobeyed your parents when you were growing up? The Ten Commandments of God say that all those things are sin. If you've done any of those things, you've committed all of them. And the bottom line is that you are guilty of sin before God. You can't save yourself from sin. Ouch. Which one? No, nah, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. But see, we, we can't save ourselves. Now, you can get all the self-help books that you want, you know, and you're having a problem with drinking, great. Get a self-help book. You have a problem with drugs, then, you know, go to uh, rehab or whatever. If you have a problem with this, that, and the other thing, hey, there's a whole bunch of places out there that can counsel you and help you in the problem areas of your life. But the bottom line is, you know what? Even if you're sober, you're still a sinner, and you're on your way to hell unless you find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. You see, the bottom line of all of this is we can't save ourselves. Only God can save us from our sins. See, we need God's power. And the most incredible power that he demonstrates to each one of us is that he can forgive us of the things that we do that are wrong. You know, and I never get tired of seeing God changing people's lives. God does it on a very daily basis. I, we had a guy this past year who was sitting up. He had probably 12 shots of whiskey and he was drinking beer. And he called one of his buddies and said, hey, you know what? What do I need to do to get right with God? And he said, no, check this. No, listen to this. And he said the longer that he drank the more sober that he got. And it was 2 o'clock in the morning, and he called a friend and said, what do I got to do to get right with God? As clear as can be. Not, well, I don't know, you can get right with God. He just said, what do I got to do? And he said, you know what? You need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to turn to him for forgiveness of your sins, because only God can save you. He said, I need to talk to you. He drove over to his house, 2.30 in the morning, Anaheim Hills, got over to his house, and said, hey, you know what? I need to know God. And he knelt down beside his bed, and he prayed to receive Christ. God, forgive me for my sins. I believe that Jesus died for me. This man, according to the Bible, is born again. He becomes a child of God. And you know what? Unbelievable things are happening in his life. This has been three or four months now, and God is doing great works in his life. He's taken a dead man, and he's made him alive spiritually. You know why? Because we can't save ourselves. Only God can do that. He's done it in my life. He's done it in many of your lives. He's done it in friends of yours. He's done it in a family. You've seen what God can do, and the power of God is all there is. For Romans 1.16 said, you know what? And this is why I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Only God and his forgiveness can change lives. It's by grace we're saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's not a, of works. It's a gift from God. Only God can save people from their sins. That's a wonderful truth, and that's why we need the power of God. The third thing is we need assurance. We need to know, you know what, no matter what, God is capable of fulfilling the promises that he made. The power of God validates the promises that God has made. 
The power of God to change lives. The power of God to raise from the dead. The power of God to create the universe. The power of God to find you a job. The power of God to heal a person sick. The power of God. I mean, you go on and on and on. The power of God is what gives me assurance that God can do the things he claims to do. And the last thing is this, is that, you know what? And we're secure in his power. If he says, I'm a child of God, I believe I'm a child of God. If he says to those who have received Christ become children of God, to those who believe in his name, I believe it's true. Why? Because the power of God is what holds us into his family. It's what keeps us into his family. He says this in John 10, 28 and 29, I give them eternal life, they shall not perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand, or my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. Hebrews 13.5 says that I will never leave you or forsake you. The bottom line is when a person enters into a, a relationship with God and becomes a part of the family of God, they are in that family for all of eternity, no matter how stupid we can get sometimes, no matter what mistakes we can make, no matter what, if we backslide or all the things that we say, well, yeah, I became a Christian, but then I kind of did this and, you know, and I did that, and God's just waiting for you to come on back to him because you're still his kid, and that never changes. So we need to understand that this is why we need the power of God. Let me close with this story. True story. I love this story because it illustrates to me because sometimes I'm kind of like stubborn and I don't really see things clearly. But I just finished reading a book. It was called Say It With Love. It was by Howard Hendricks. And he tells this story in there. Let me just read it to you. He said, We had a lovely couple in Dallas a number of years ago. He sold his business at a loss, went into vocational Christian work, and things got rather rough. There were four kids in the family, and one night at family worship, Timmy, the youngest boy, said, Daddy, do you think Jesus would mind if I asked him for a new shirt? He said, well, no, of course not. Let's write that down on our, on our prayer list that we have here. So the mom wrote it down and said, shirt for Timmy. And she added, size seven. <laughs> well, every day that they got together, they prayed for the shirt. And finally, after several weeks, he got a call from a local businessman who said, you know, I know that you guys have four sons. And you could probably use some shirts and, or some clothes. And what is it that you can use? And she said, well, you know what? We could really use some shirts. And he looked at his inventory and said, well, the only thing that I have, I've got, I've got a dozen shirts, but they're just all size seven. And she said, well, great, I'd love to have them. And so he brought them by the house, and that night, as they normally did, they got together and they were praying again, and they got down to the list, and they said, okay, here's Timmy's turn, you know. Hey, well, let's ask Jesus for his new shirt. And his mom said, well, we don't have to ask him anymore. And he said, why? He goes, because he's answered that prayer. Because God's provided you with the new shirt. And just at that moment, had one of the boys bring out a shirt and drop it off. They put it in front of him. Timmy's like, whoa, this is great. Looked at it, size seven. And just at that point, he circled out. The next brother came in, dropped another one off. Next one came in, dropped another one off. Next one came in, dropped another one off. Next one came in, dropped another one. And Timmy's eyes were like, hey. And he had a dozen shirts stacked up in front of him. And you know what? There's a little kid in Dallas who knows what we need to know, and that is that God can do all things, and nothing's impossible for God, and he can provide shirts for Timmy, and he can even provide size sevens and give him a dozen of them. And all I know is to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ever ask or think, all we need to do is thank God that nothing's impossible with God. Let's pray. Father, we're just grateful for this time to be together. We're just thankful that uh, with you nothing is impossible, though we need to understand what your will is and your purpose and your plans are for our lives. God, we just thank you, as uh, Timmy did, that you meet all of our needs, that as we look around, as incredible as providing 12 shirts is, how much more incredible is it is to give us breath every day. 
to give us air to breathe and a place to live and food and shelter and clothing and just all the things that we take for granted on a daily basis. What a privilege it is to be able to stand on the earth and not get flown away into the universe that you hold and sustain all things together. And God, I know that as, as we come together that there are many of us who have needs, very personal needs in our life, and we're wondering if you care. And you tell us that if we cast all our cares upon you, that you will care for us. God, I just pray that each one of us will recognize on a daily basis of your concern for our lives, that you're able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we could ever ask or think. And we just praise you in it. In Jesus' name, amen.